Well, it is good to have you uh, with us this morning, whether you're here in Bellingham, those of you joining us in Skagit at our Skagit campus there, uh, online with the live stream or in Boca Raton at the Trinity Church of God. Uh, before we get going uh, today, I want to just uh, spend a moment. Many of you are aware that this last week, our high school director, Jeff Hort, uh, does our high school here um, in, uh, in Bellingham, at our Bellingham campus, on Monday was in a, in a pretty bad accident and actually spent uh, Monday through Friday in the hospital. And uh, I just thought, um, if you were not aware of that, to let you know that he is uh, now home and actually talked with Katie, his wife, this morning and would ask that you would uh, continue to be praying for him and for them. Uh, he has a, a broken ankle, broken nose, uh, separated shoulder, uh, underwent a severe uh, concussion, multiple lacerations, uh, and we're praising God that he's alive. It could have been a whole lot worse, but it's an ongoing, a long journey of recovery for him. And uh, so I wonder if right now, if you would just uh, join me here in, in Skagit online as we lift up Jeff and his family uh, before the Lord. Father, we thank you for your goodness. And Lord, we thank you that, that uh, Jeff's life was spared in this accident. God, I pray now that you would continue your healing work in his body. I pray that you would be with him as he's just struggling with the frustration of not being mobile, uh, the patience it takes. God, I pray for Katie, that you would give her the strength uh, that she needs to care not only for her husband, uh, but uh, for their two children. And we pray for Emma and Taylor as well as, as they don't understand why they can't jump on daddy's lap. And I just pray that they would have patience. And God, in the midst of all of this, uh, we pray that you'd be at work uh, in their lives and we give you the praise and the glory for that. Amen. Amen. Continue to lift them up uh, in prayer. I am really glad that you are here today because we are joining together to celebrate the greatest event in all of human history, and that is that Jesus Christ is alive, that he came back from the dead, that the tomb is empty, and I can say he is risen, and you can say he is risen indeed. Now, some of you are saying, oh, wait a second. And if you're watching online, you're going, are they showing reruns? Because he's wearing an Easter outfit and we're doing the he is risen, he is risen indeed thing. I recognize that we're in the latter half of May. But what I've been saying to you is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ isn't something that we just celebrate in the spring. It's the reality that we live in every single day of our lives. And because of that reality, because the tomb is empty, because Jesus is alive, we have a hope even for this day. So today I say, happy Easter, he is risen. There we go, Easter in May. We can do it every single day. All right, it's fantastic. I don't know if uh, there are certain times or seasons of your life that you look back on with nostalgia. There's things that come and go, things that run their course, that become outdated, that are no longer relevant. And, and maybe you even look back on those things and you think, oh yeah, that was kind of an easy time of life or a fun time of life or those kind. Of... Let me give you one from my uh, earlier years of life. And if you know this, you can join in. Here's one that's kind of nostalgic to me. My baloney has a first name. It's my baloney has a second name. It's and I love to eat it every day. And if you ask me why, I'll say because Oscar Mayer has a way with yes, B O L O G N A. Street vernacular refers to it as baloney. It's not spelled that way, but that's how we call it. That's kind of a thing from my past. It's irrelevant. In fact, I can't remember the last time I had bologna. Does anyone even eat bologna anymore? I mean, if you do, you shouldn't. I, I read that it's, it's like one of the worst processed meat products that you can put into your body, and our parents fed us that, and we all sang about it. What we've been looking at in these last four or five weeks is something that will never be outdated on this side of eternity. 
something that will never be irrelevant. And I pray that it never just becomes a moment of nostalgia for us. It's called the hope of Jesus Christ, the hope in Jesus Christ, the hope beyond any circumstance, any situation, anything that we might face. It's that hope that we have. And it is true that the tomb was empty, and it is true that the presence of Jesus is there, and the reality is the truth of the empty tomb and the presence of Jesus being there does not guarantee that you live in the reality of the resurrection. Since I'm celebrating Easter in May today, I thought it'd be good to go back and look at another, before we get into 1 Peter, and we will, to go back and look at another Easter story that doesn't get quite as much uh, airtime on Easter weekend. Sometimes it does, but not so much. It happened on the very first Resurrection Sunday. It happened on the very first Easter. And it happened to two of the followers of Jesus, not of the 11 or the 12 disciples. It was with the, the inner circle and probably some followers of Jesus who lived in Jerusalem. So Jesus had been crucified on Friday, Saturday was a horrible day. And on that Sunday, these two were not aware of the, the empty tomb. And they're walking about seven miles west of Jerusalem to a little town called Emmaus. And as they're going on this road to Emmaus, they're talking about all the things that have transpired over the last couple of days and maybe even before that. And that's where we pick up in Luke chapter 24. It says, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. I, I love the thought of this. Here are these two people walking along this road and they're down in the face and they're, they're discouraged and they're talking about all these things. And Jesus just kind of catches up to them and walks alongside of them. How long he walked with them, we don't know. He's just there and they're probably like, okay, whatever. But they don't recognize it's Jesus, but he's right there. So they're walking and they're talking, and, and, and I know it's the scripture, and I know we take this scripture very, very seriously, but you have to look and see the humor of Jesus. There's a human side of Jesus, I think, that has a sense of humor that never ends. It says this, he asked them, Jesus, what are you discussing together as you walk along? As if he didn't know, as if he hadn't even heard. They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? I mean, he's almost like reprimanding this stranger. What are you doing? And in one of those, and for some of you who are older, in one of those Columbo moments, <laughs> Jesus, the son of God, just kind of says, uh, what, what things? What things do you speak of? Well, what things? I mean, what, what, there was the Passover. Yeah, there was that, that weird weather pattern that happened on Friday. That was odd. Uh, there was the Sabbath. What, what, what things are you guys talking about? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. So here they are talking to Jesus of Nazareth, telling him about Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth and wondering why he doesn't know about Jesus of Nazareth. And he is. Jesus of Nazareth. I love this. Because at this, at this moment, Jesus can say, I wonder what they're going to say about me. I, I don't know, it, it maybe it would not be a good thing if you could hear what people say about you when they don't think you're listening. There was a time years ago when I was working doing youth work, I would get opportunities to speak at youth rallies, youth camps, youth retreats. And there was this one youth rally, a lot of youth groups come together and I was one of the speakers. And, um, and so there's all these kids and they don't know each other and they don't know all the leaders. I went into the bathroom uh, before my session and there's two junior high boys in there. 
I said, hey guys, They're like, hey, you know, I'm just one of the youth leaders to them. So how are you guys doing good? You enjoying your time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You looking forward to it? Yeah. Say, so, hey, wh- who's speaking? This is a chant. They don't know who I am and they don't know that I'm going to be speaking, but it's an opportunity for me to find out what do they know? What do they think? Well, Jesus comes up and he's asking, you know, who, what, what things? Jesus and Nazareth. And now he finds out what they say and they're actually pretty accurate. He was a prophet Powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. All very accurate things. And now they're discouraged, they're depressed, and they're telling this guy who apparently doesn't know any of this. And he follows up and he says, and we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hope. But now that Jesus is dead, our hope is dead. While Jesus was alive where there was this hope for the future, we had a hope. And we had hoped, past tense, but that's then. And this is now. There was Friday and this is Sunday. And the reality is that the, it, the tomb was empty and Jesus was right in their presence. But they were not living in the reality of the resurrection. That might be my Easter sermon for next year. It is possible that the truth of the resurrection happens, the presence of Jesus there, and you're not living in that reality. So Jesus is going on his way. They say, no, 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 come have lunch with us. You can read this story for yourself in in Luke 24. So they're talking, and Jesus, he just opens up scripture for for them, and then when he breaks bread, they realize who he is. And they're like, wow! I can imagine one guy going, you idiot. You were talking to Jesus, asking him if he knew who Jesus was. Can you believe it? And then they do this 11K race. They run seven miles back into Jerusalem to where all the other disciples are. And they're like, yeah, we know, we know. He, he showed up to Peter. He's alive, all that thing. And at that point where it had hoped, now they have hope. And it wasn't just that he had been raised from the dead. And so now we can have Easter celebrations and Sunday brunches and, and ham sandwiches afterwards. Now everything would change, not just in the spring, but every day. And for them, every day was Easter. Every day was lived in the reality and the res- of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's why I'm wearing Easter clothes today saying he is risen. Today is Easter day. Every day is Easter day because Jesus has been raised from the dead. For some of you who've been a part of Cornwall for like decades, many decades, you may remember when we were in the old building in the late, uh, mid to late uh, 90s, there was a song that we used to sing and we sang it a lot because I loved it. You ever wanna know what is the right kind of songs to sing in church? It's the ones the pastor loved, that's what I'm just saying. There was a song written by Rick Mutchow and the song was entitled, He Arose. And there was a line in this song that says, I can feel the earth still shaken. Every morning I awaken to the resurrection of God's son. Every single day is a resurrection day because Jesus Christ is alive. And because Jesus is alive, hope is alive. And if we have Christ in us, this mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory, if we have Jesus in us, we have hope within us. We can go from hopeless to hopeful, from, from doubtful to doubtless because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, with this letter that we've been looking at in 1 Peter, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. We're going to continue on. There's this foundational verse that we've read every single week for the last four or five weeks. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what we're talking about. This new birth into a living hope through the resurrection, the fact that Jesus Christ is, is alive. And that it's not just what we hope for, but it's who we hope in, where our hope is. That it's in Jesus and that we can have that hope. Because he is alive, our hope is alive. Because he is alive today, our hope is alive today. You see, for the followers of Jesus for the last 2,000 years, hope wasn't just something they wished for. Our hope has a name. It's Jesus. My hope, it has a first name. It's J-E-S-U-S. Okay, we won't sing the rest of the song. But that's not just a nostalgic song. That's the reality that we live in. And because Jesus is our hope, then no matter what circumstance, no matter what season of life, no matter what situation, no matter what hardship we go through, we can still have hope. And that's what this letter that Peter wrote to these people was all about. Last week, uh, Pastor Kip here in Bellingham, Pastor Brian there in Skagit, preached about hope beyond suffering. The people that this letter was written to in 1 Peter were undergoing unbelievable suffering, persecution, hardships, difficulties, like physically and, and even to the point of death. And it wasn't because of some racial deal or some uh, social economic class or some political leaning or standing or anything like that. There was one reason why they experienced so much persecution and hardship, and it was because they were followers after Jesus Christ. They had received this grace, they had entered into this new birth of a living hope, but now because of that, they're being persecuted. In fact, their lives are being threatened and taken. And I would imagine, if that's the case, where you're undergoing this severe persecution and suffering because of your faith in Christ, it would be really easy to get tempted to say, this Jesus thing isn't working for me. I thought he was supposed to give me life in all of its fullness, but my life has gotten worse. It's gotten more complicated. It's gotten more uh, suffering, more difficult. And it would be, be tempting to, to, to walk away from the faith. Or maybe if you're just committed to it, it just gets so weary day after day, living in the hardships, living in the suffering, that there would be this temptation of, I, I, just, I just need a break from that. I just want to feel good for a minute. Just, just let me do something that just, it's just kind of like, okay, that's uh, whatever pleasure. It's, it's, it's just in the weariness of all this. There could have been a temptation for them to say, you know what? I look at the rest of the world. I look at what our culture's doing and they're living far from this idea of what God would have for me and Jesus and his life. But man, their life seems so much better. Seems like they're so much easier and, and what they're facing, it, it's so much more fun. It would be tempting to say, I'll go do what the rest of the world's doing or I'll go back and live the way I used to live. And I think it's those kind of temptations that Peter is confronting knowing that, listen, you've been given a new birth into a new kind of life, and I know it's hard, but don't be tempted to throw it away and don't be tempted to go back to your old ways and don't be tempted to follow the culture around you. There is a hope even in the midst of those kind of temptations. And so he writes to them. Now, the letter of 1 Peter, which is this whole series is, is loosely based on this letter, we're obviously not going through it verse by verse. There's so much in it that we're not gonna be able to cover. I want us to look primarily at four verses today, but I'm gonna be referring to two or three other places in the letter that he refers to the theme that we're gonna be looking at. So if you have your Bible or your tablet or your phone, you wanna follow along, specifically, 
1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 13 through verse 16. Now last week as Pastor uh, Brian and Pastor Kip were preaching, they talked through that first part of 1 Peter 1 where it talks about this living hope, where it talks about the salvation we have in Christ, where it talks about even Christ's suffering and the glory that's waiting for us. And with all of that is kind of the backdrop. In verse 13 he says, therefore, therefore, because of all that, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. And there's a ton in those four verses. In fact, even if you went to just the first part of verse 13, it says this, therefore, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, and set your hope firmly on the grace of Christ. That right there, my friends, is a three-point sermon. As a preacher, I'm telling you how to preach. This is a three-point sermon. We can just stop with this. In fact, this will be our outline for today. We will look at these three things because he says, this is what you need to do in this new birth, in this living hope that you've been given. There's a a thing of, of way that you think. What do you think about? And how is it that you live your life and where is your hope set? That's what we're gonna talk about. What is it we think? How do we live? And where is our hope? Um... Harrison Jones, who used to uh, be an intern here, he's on staff at First Pres here in Bellingham, he said, when you're reading scripture, if you wanna know what God wants you to do, focus on the verbs. What, what are these action things that God wants us to do? And this one says, prepare, you know, be and set. Prepare your mind, be in the way you live and set your hope. So we're just gonna, we're gonna look at those kind of things. And, and so that's basically what I want us to talk about today. How is it that we can think the way that God would have us to think, to live the way that God would have us to live, and the hope to do all of that. All right, so that's kind of where we're going, now you you know. So he says, prepare your minds for action. I think one of the important things for us when it comes to temptation is that we be gaining a proper perspective about temptation, that we think right about temptation. It's easy for us when it comes to temptation to just face it emotionally because that's what usually temptation is. You're in the midst of a moment, there's this desire, there's this, this longing, there's this pull, there's this draw, whatever it might be, and you feel like you want to do or all this kind of thing, and we come about it emotionally. What Peter is saying is before that ever happens, you need to think right about what's going to happen before you're ever tempted. Prepare your minds for action. Think about this. Here's the other problem that we face sometimes is that sometimes when it comes to temptation, we hear that word temptation and we kind of downplay it. We kind of caricaturize, is that a word? Uh, We kind of animate it. We make a cartoon of it. When it comes to temptation, we think about a a little red demon on our shoulder saying, eat the cake, eat the cake. And that's fine. That's not the kind of temptation we're talking about. And by the way, Usually your little demon on your shoulder is either John Levitz or Danny DeVito in a little suit with horns, okay? And we kind of make it lie like temptation's not a big deal. Okay, I'm not talking about your diet and some of those kind of things. We're talking about a deeper level of temptation. Here's the other problem that sometimes we have when we grasp that, that temptation is towards sin, not just, you know, messing up on our diet, but towards sin is that sometimes, and hear me all the way out on this, sometimes we put all of our emphasis on one aspect, and that is the forgiveness of Christ. Hear me out. 
I am so grateful for the grace of Jesus Christ. I'm so grateful for his forgiveness. I'm so grateful for the second, third, fourth, fifth, 100th chance he's given me over and over again. I'm thankful that when we come to Jesus, he's there willing to forgive us our sins. I'm thankful for that. But sometimes we only talk about, yes, sin, you, you sin, well, there's forgiveness. And we don't talk about maybe, it's not just always running to for forgiveness, but maybe it's changing the way we think, changing the way we live, changing the way we operate, so that there's a transformation in our lives. This is probably a really poor illustration, but it'd be like this. If you had the mentality of, well, I have full coverage insurance on my car, so, and you go out in the parking lot and it's demolition derby time for you. <laughs> and you drive drunk, and, and you're going off, and, and yes, insurance will cover it. But what you don't think about is the damage that's done to your car, the damage that's done to you, the damage that's done to others, and the consequences of what you're gonna be paying in increased premiums for the rest of your life. So what I'm saying with this is this, that yes, the forgiveness is always there, but maybe we need to concentrate on if I give in to this temptation, if I sin, there might be some damage that's done to me. That might result in some damage that's done to people that are innocent, the people that I love. There might be some ongoing consequences that I will deal with for the rest of my life. Some of you as well as I know that we have been forgiven for our past. That is over. That will never be brought up against us before our, our heavenly father. But we live with some consequences from those sins. We are forgiven. The guilt is gone. But there's consequences that live on. And I think Peter is warning them. Listen, you've got to think, when it comes to temptation, you've got to think beyond just this isolated moment, this isolated little event. Later in, in, the, uh, in the book, in chapter two, he says this, dear friends, and you just see this pastor's heart. He's like, people that I love. Dear friends, I urge you, I, ple I, I, I plead with you, I, I beg you. And this is a theme that you, if you read 1 Peter, he comes back to again and again, as aliens and strangers, as someone who's, whose citizenship is not here. It's not about being here on this earth. We're citizens of, of a different kingdom. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. We're aliens here, we're strangers here. And then he says to them these words, I urge you, I beg you, to abstain from sinful desires. These things that pull you away, don't look at them as just an isolated, oh, well, I'll just kind of cave on this one and then I'll run to forgiveness. Now, this is not just a, hey, just say no. Just say no. Because quite honestly, I don't think that's very effective. In the midst of a temptation, you're like, okay, just say no, just say no, just say no. Well, why? Why not? When everything inside of me is pulling me this way, it's not just the what not to do, but why is that? What, what is the consequences of that? What is the pain? And what is the price? I mean, later in chapter one, we won't get to that today, but he says, you've been redeemed. You've been redeemed. Your, your life has been purchased, has been brought back, not by silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Do you know the price that was paid for your salvation? And then he says, and by the way, there's one other thing. Abstain from these, these sinful, evil desires which wage war against your soul. Like there's something deeper going on here. In temptation, we think of it as an isolated moment. He's saying, do you not understand that there is a sinister strategy that the enemy is doing beneath that to try and destroy this thing that God is doing within you? 
this beautiful transformational work of making you his son, making you his daughter, transforming you into the likeness of Christ, when we give in to sin, that sets us back. That, that pushes against God's work in our life. In fact, he gets even kind of more graphic later in chapter five when he says this, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. These temptations aren't just, oh, I'll just give in here. This is the enemy of our soul trying to set back what God is doing in our lives, wanting to steal, kill, and destroy the work of God within us. Now, some of you might right now be pushed back saying, listen, I'm done with the fear thing. You know, I was raised under fear. It's all about fear, afraid of God, afraid of hell, afraid of the nurse, or afraid of the, the, the priest, or afraid of the past, afraid of my parents. I'm, I'm done with fear. Listen, is this a scare tactic or a reality check? I don't think God in his word ever uses fear as the tactic for transformation. You know, what does the scripture say? Perfect love casts out all fear. God's not about having you be afraid God has not given us a spirit of fear, a spirit of timidity. Greater is he that is within us than he that is in the world. He doesn't want us to run around scared. He says, I just want you to prepare your minds for action, to be aware of what's going on out here. That there is the enemy of your soul and he's trying to, to steal, kill, and destroy. So he says, I urge you, abstain from those things because what's at stake here is far deeper. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, do not conform any longer to the pattern of, pattern of this world, but be transformed, here it is again, by the renewing of your mind. Push pause here. This is why our desire is that you would be immersing yourself in God's word all the time. That you would be reading it on your own. You would be studying it on your own. You'd be in small groups and quads where you're, you're digging in and asking questions and discussing it. That you would be memorizing it. That you would apply it. Because we need to think according to God's way. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are his ways above our ways and his thoughts above our thoughts. To fill our minds with the thoughts of God, with the words of God, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And he says, and then, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. Okay, when we're talking about temptation to sin, again, I, I don't want us to get on that little, oh yeah, I was tempted to, to eat the pie. Okay, let's, the temptation to sin, really that temptation always comes down to a question of the will. Isn't that why in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Isn't that why in the garden, Jesus demonstrated and modeled for us how to pray. Not my will, but your will be done. And in the midst of our temptations, that's the real struggle. Am I gonna go with God's will or am I gonna go with my will? And he says, let me just kind of help you on this thinking clearly. God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. I don't think we're always convinced of this. That's part of the problem. Uh, my friend, um, Bill Giovanetti, he's a pastor down in Reading. He's uh, the one I think I heard this from where he made this statement. He says, there is absolutely nothing good for me outside of the will of God. And at first I, I, I kind of thought, really? And the more I thought about it, it's like, that's true. 
There is nothing good for us outside of the will of God. We're just not convinced of it. We're not convinced that God's will is good, pleasing, perfect, that it's the best. Uh, Rankin Wilborn in his book, Union with Christ, says this question about God's goodness is underneath every temptation that we ever face. Is he truly good? Timothy Keller in his book, The Prodigal Prophet, talking about Jonah, he writes, this is such a profound statement. He says this, if you wanna understand your own behavior, you must understand that all sin against God is grounded in a refusal to believe that God is more dedicated to our good and more aware of what that is than we are. I mean, just stop and think about that. We distrust God because we assume he is not truly for us, that if we give him complete control, we will be miserable. We've got this idea that God wants to destroy our life. He wants to ruin all of our fun. What does scripture say? Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. That God is altogether good. He knows what's best and he wants the best for us. That his will is good, pleasing, and perfect. But we're not convinced of that. And so we go on, my will, I know what I'm doing. Listen, if you've ever raised a teenager, some of you have. Some of you are in the midst of that. When a teenager knows everything there is to know about life, and you as a parent, with the greatest amount of love for your child, and you want nothing but the best for your child, you talk with him or her, you've got some perspective they don't have, you've lived through some hardships they haven't seen, you can see with a clarity they can't see because they've got their hormones or their emotions or whatever it might be or the short-sightedness and you know where this friendship's gonna lead. You know what that situation's gonna lead to. You know what's gonna happen here. You've got a perspective and you know and you want the best and you give them that guidance because you love them and you want them to experience the best life possible and you've got some perspective and some wisdom they don't have, right? right. Oh, you're poor kids. <laughs> Are you guys all being raised by your teenage children? <laughs> you want the very best for them and you know, though they don't believe it, you know better than they do on some things. Maybe not technology, <laughs> but life. Now, extrapolate that out to a perfect, holy, good, heavenly father who has nothing but love for his children and wants nothing but the best for his children and has an eternal perspective that we don't even have the capacity to see and knows life because he is the creator, sustainer, redeemer of all life. How much more would he know what is good and pleasing and perfect? And you know what I find myself doing? Being a teenage boy. No, God, I know what I'm doing. I know, I've got this one figured out. No, no, no. Our Father loves us. And Peter takes that whole picture of a, of a parent-child relationship. Verse uh, 14 says this, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had, past tense, when you lived in ignorance. Like, now we, we move from now this clear thinking to right living. Because we've been given new birth into a living hope he says, now I want you not to just think clearly about these things to set your mind for action, but I want you to live in such a way that you're living this new life. You've been given new birth, now there's a new life. You know, I was just, uh, this week, we, we've got about 
four or five babies that either just got born or being ready to be born in our church right now. And, um, and this week I was, I was with uh, Ryan and Kaylee Nelson. They, their uh, third little boy was just born, I think on Thursday or Friday. I was there on Friday. Got to hold this tiny little baby boy. I was just talking with someone this morning. She was due Thursday. So if you're here, boil some water and rip some towels. Okay. Uh, got to hold this baby little boy. And here he is. He's got a new birth. But it doesn't just stop at a new birth. There's a whole life ahead of him as he grows and matures. And he said, you've been given a new birth in Christ. But it doesn't just stop at birth. There's this new life. There's a new way of thinking. There's a new way of operating. There's a new way of living. There's a new morality. There's a new ethic. There's, there's a new uh, priority. There's, there's, there's a new way of doing life. And this is how I want you to live. The way that God would have you to live. So Peter writes to them and he says, you are a chosen people. Know who your identity is. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. This is who you are. This is the family you've been born into. You've been born into royalty. You're not like you used to be. And the way that you have, have now identified who you are in Christ, he says, the result of that is that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Out of the way you used to live, out of the deeds of darkness, into the light of, a life of light. Out of the sinful nature, into the fruit of the spirit. Out of the old, into the new. That you would be changed, that you would be transformed, that you would do life differently now. Paul talks about this in Colossians chapter three, when he says, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but it's a new day and it's a new life and it's a new reality in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And Peter later in, in uh, chapter four, he talks about how they used to live and how now people don't understand when there's a transformation. And some of you have experienced this. He says, for you have spent, past tense, enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. And when he's saying pagans, that's not meant to be, it's not like a condemnation or judgment of others. He's saying people that are not following God's will. They're not going God's way. You, you did that long enough. Living in debauchery. This is just this, um, you know, unleashed lifestyle of sensuality. Lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of wastefulness, this dissipation. And they heap abuse on you. Some of you have experienced this. Hey, why don't you do this with us anymore? Hey, come on, let's go. What's wrong? Why? Oh, you're changed. You're different. He says, absolutely. You don't live the way you used to live. You don't do some of the things you used to do. Because we're thinking differently and we're going God's way. And we're living a different life. Here's the beauty of this whole thing, is that our salvation is totally secured in what Christ did on the cross, the finished work of Christ on the cross. But there's an ongoing transformation that happens in our life. And it's for the rest of our lives as we become more like the character of Christ. That, is, that, that piece of theology is summarized in one verse in Hebrews where it says this, by one sacrifice, on the cross, he, Jesus, has made, past tense, done, has made perfect forever those who are being made, present tense, ongoing, holy. 
that Jesus has done something that has sealed it for us. It's done. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's imputed righteousness, that the righteousness of Christ is on us. We are, in, in the eyes of God, we are seen in the righteousness, robed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne because of what Christ did on the cross. Done deal. But there's an ongoing transformation that happens too. He's made once for all perfect those who are being made holy. Salvation done on the cross. Transformation ongoing process with the Holy Spirit. The old church word for that is sanctification. <laughs> that God is doing this work and he's creating you the character of Christ, that you be transformed with ever increasing glory into the likeness of Christ, as it says in 2 Corinthians 3. That there be this change in how we live our lives because of who we are in Christ. In Ephesians chapter four, it says, uh, you were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off the old, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. We're thinking differently now. To be made new in the attitudes of your mind and to put on the new life created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's what we were created to be. Transformed into the likeness. All right. So Peter finishes off and he says, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. We don't like verses like this. Part of it is because we know ourselves. And we read that verse and say, I could never do that. I don't have the ping halo. Or we think holiness, that's like walking around some lobotomized state like these Stepford Christians. You know, it's like, and, and we got this idea. Holy means different. Set apart, changed, transformed, becoming more like Christ. This ongoing process. And so he's saying, that just sounds like a whole lot of list of do's and don'ts and I was raised with all of that. This is where we got not just the right thinking, not just this new living, but where we set our hope. Because our living hope is our living help that Jesus Christ, who came back from the dead, who is alive today, who we celebrate today, is our help in this process of transformation. When we're tempted to sin, when we're tempted to go our own way, Jesus is our hope and he is our help. In Hebrews it says this, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus gets it, he knows. Whatever you're going through, you can say, man, no one's experienced this. Jesus has, and what's even great, better, chapter two, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You know what that is? That's living in the reality of the resurrection today. Allowing Jesus to be living within us so that we have his help and his hope when we're facing temptation, thinking his thoughts, living his life through his power. Old, old hymn. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. What Jesus has done, he will continue to do, and we have a living hope through Jesus Christ. You know, the, probably the, I don't know, the poster uh, 
verse for temptation is found in 1 Corinthians where it says this, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. He's given us a new mind, a new birth, a living hope, and we have Jesus Christ, the mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. When we face temptation, we do not face it alone. We walk with Jesus. We submit to Jesus. We are empowered by Jesus. We're transformed. And Jesus invites us to live in this reality. Live in the reality of the resurrection, especially in this area of temptation. Where he says, I've given you a new birth. Now just keep walking with me in this new life. I'll close with this. And again, hear me all the way out on this, please. So many times in my life, so many times in our life, we sin and then we run to Jesus for forgiveness. And let me just tell you, whenever you sin, you should run to Jesus for forgiveness. <laughs> but here's the deal. You have no idea how many times I run to Jesus for forgiveness and he forgives me. I wonder if sometimes Jesus says to me, Bob, you can run to me for forgiveness every time. But why don't you not just run to me for forgiveness? Why don't you walk with me for power and hope and transformation? And maybe the more you walk with me, the less you'll have to run to me to get forgiveness. That maybe, just maybe, you'll allow my spirit and my resurrection power to transform you into a new way of thinking a new way of living in the power and the hope of the reality of the resurrection. You know what I say? He is risen. He is risen indeed. Happy Easter.